back to The Rock Show with me, Andy Fox. Thank you for joining me. Classic tracking one of these days from the metal album from Pink Floyd from 1971. But we're focusing on the 50th anniversary of the album The Dark Side of the Moon, the eighth album from Pink Floyd, released on the 1st of March 1973 by Harvest Records. It was the follow-up to 1971's Medal, which had got to number three. Dark Side of the Moon has sold over 45 million copies worldwide, making it the third best-selling album of all time and the best-selling album of the 70s. It was a blockbuster release of the album era, a concept piece with its famous prism cover and propelled record sales throughout the 70s and it spent over 970 weeks on the US chart. It's also listed in the Guinness Book of Records for being in the charts longer than any other album in history. In the UK, it was certified 15 times platinum, but only peaked to number two. Now, this month, there's a 50th anniversary box set deluxe edition released with a 2023 remaster and a live version from Wembley in 1974. We're going to play a couple of extended live tracks in hour three. But so many copies sold, it is rumoured that not a moment goes by without someone playing a track from Dark Side of the Moon. And tonight we will add to that statistic with a documentary on the making of the album with David Gilmore, Roger Walters, Nick Mason and the late great Richard Wright. Then in the third hour, we will play the album in full. I think because we still had a common goal which was to become rich and famous. The ideas um, that Roger was exploring apply to every new generation. They still have very much the same relevance as they had. I think one of the, the successes of Dark Side is the fact that actually it's, it's very rich. There's a lot of, there are a lot of songs, a lot of ideas all compressed onto the one record. I can clearly remember that moment of sitting and listening to the whole mix all the way through and thinking, my God, we've really done something fantastic here. The original concept album to use that ghastly phrase, was Dark Side of the Moon, which was very much designed as as that. I mean, in fact, before the record was devised, there was a conversation about the form it would take and the link between the different themes contained contained therein. The other records were devised in slightly different... Each record was devised in a slightly different way. The album went straight up to the top of the charts and uh, we had a hit single and uh, they were selling us, like hotcakes and uh, we instantly went I mean we we surpassed our entire 
record sale worldwide, total of all our albums put together in a, just a few months of Dark Side of the Moon had sold more than everything we'd ever sold before put together by a long way. I should think by the time Dark Side of the Moon came out we'd sold close to a million albums around the world total in our career. The Dark Side since then has sold 19 million, so... Uh, and, and of course, all those other records, all the all the earlier records, have now sold vastly more. I mean, um, than their initial release. You know, I mean, like if you take, say, the first year of, of release, where you normally expect all the, the the majority of the sales to be done in the first year of release, all those first records have sold more since Dark Side of the Moon than they sold originally in the first year or two of their release, and they've all gone gold or platinum or stuff which none of them were remotely near before it was a huge album and huge not just in terms of its sales but in terms of its influence this was where underground music progressive rock whatever really went mainstream it was a record that had lots of traditional pop values you could sing along to these songs but it also was the kind of thing that took you places if you wanted to listen to it in a darkened room it may very well be the ultimate concept record because the concept is there the songs are there, the spaces and the music are there, but it doesn't take away any of the imagination. Dark Side of the Moon was originally conceived as a piece for assorted lunatics in February 1972, with lyrical themes of conflict, greed, the passing of time, death and insanity the latter inspired by Sid Barrett's mental state. Here's Roger Walters. After Sid went crazy in 68 and Dave joined, we were, all of us, searching, fumbling around, looking for, well, where do we go now? Because here was the guy who starts producing all these songs and uh, was the sort of heartbeat of the band. Sid cast the long and large shadow over events. I think that the band were very impressive to keep going, actually, after the loss of, of their main creative drive. I mean, it was not something you'd choose, is it? I mean, you wouldn't sit around and say, OK, let's get rid of our songwriter. After Sid had gone, the music became more kind of soundscapes than songs. You, you, ha you have to work to your strengths, and um, it may, it's a very good thing that we couldn't write singles. We might have not have done some of the interesting work that we did. Once Sid was out of the picture, the Floyd just went glacial. They just let it all spread out. I saw the Floyd for the first time. It was the summer of 68. It was actually the first American tour with David Gilmour. And they were just extraordinary. You know, it was Let There Be More Light, Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun. It was total space rock. I started falling out of love with that... Um, some of that psychedelic noodling stuff. We were still then playing a lot of instrumental work, if you like, and that would be half the album. But we were always searching for a direction. You're fighting a little bit between uh, wanting to push boundaries back a little bit 
and move forward in an, an experimental way, but also to retain melody. When you get to metal, quite clearly um, echoes, shows the direction that we're moving in. The rest of metal, as I recall, was songs. And so, uh, you know, the flip side was a 20-minute piece, A, and so it was a construct, and B, uh, it was beginning of all the writing about other people. was the beginning of empathy, if you like. You know, two strangers passing in the street by chance, two passing glances meet, and I am you and what I see is me. There's a sort of thread that's gone through everything for me ever since then and, and, uh, and had a big um, eruption. Dark Side of the Moon was recorded in 1972 and 1973 at EMI Studios in London and developed during live performances, the very first time the band had played an entire album on tour. It was then named as Eclipse because another band had used Dark Side of the Moon as its title. The album was conceived as a concept album with all the tracks making one continuous piece of music that would focus on the pressures faced by the band during their arduous lifestyle, with Roger Walters writing all the lyrics. We hear tonight from Roger Walters, Nick Mason, David Gilmore and the late, great Richard White. All four of us were there and there was a discussion about the putting the album together and making it into this themed this, I, I mean, what is now called a concept album. There are a number of things that impinge upon an individual to, that colour his view of existence. There are pressures that are capable of pushing you in one direction or another and uh, these are some of them and w whether they push you towards insanity, death, empathy, um, greed, whatever, uh, there's something about the Newtonian view of that physics that it, that might be interesting, and it, maybe that could be uh, um, this is what this record is about. It was one of those really good moments that most bands do experience where everyone is on side and everyone likes the idea and there's some sort of agreement as to more or less who's going to do what. Dark Side of the Moon started in a rehearsal room in Bermondsey, I think, that belonged a warehouse, belonged to the Rolling Stones where we did some um, sort of jamming, writing, whatever you want to call it. I'm not sure how much writing happened there. You know, Let's play E minor and A for an hour or two. And, oh, that sounds all right. That'll take up five minutes. These records, these albums that we sold, at that point, none of them had sold over, oh, I don't think, over 200,000 copies worldwide on any of those first few albums, including Metal, which I think may have sold a few more than that. But certainly nothing had even approached going gold in America, even, not even halfway. And, uh, but we were selling out arenas and things all over America. We could sell out a, a, an arena in any city in America in, like, 71, 72, um, long before Dark Side of the Moon came out. 
We started off all together in a rehearsal room in London in 1971 or two, I guess. I don't know. It must have been 1972, I think, early 72. We sat and we started um, writing that stuff. We'd just... We'd, we, at first, we were just writing musical pieces, you know, chord sequences and stuff. And we had some other pieces from previous, you know. We had, uh, for example, Us and Them was something that Rick had written the music for originally, and we were going to put it in uh, that film, Zabriskie Point. But Antonio only turned it down, so <laughs> we still had that. Basically, we just sat there and wrote lots of bits of music, and Roger eventually... Uh, you know, we'd got one or two bits of songs and stuff, and some words and things, but uh, Roger came up with this uh, lunacy idea. Basically, then we started... He started really tacking the words onto all these pieces of music we'd got, and then, obviously, things all start changing at that moment. When you've got an idea, you start rewriting some of the music. And... But we actually had that knocked into shape, but um, we were actually performing it live on tour in America... As, as as called Eclipse, it was called Eclipse, um, and we toured it in England and Europe and America before we'd even recorded it. Definitely in '72, they were they were hearing virtually the whole of Dark Side of the Moon. Not much of it. One or two pieces got changed. The on the run sequence was a guitar instrumental sort of piece originally, and then when we came up with this synthesizer piece, we we put that in instead. But that was during the making of the record. We rehearsed it, and it was pretty well in shape, and we were touring it. So we had actually been played it on tour for months before we even went started in the studio. Obviously, things changed when we got in the studio. The album rather appropriately opens and ends with a heartbeat into the track Breathe, which had been played live before it was recorded. All the lyrics were written by Roger Walters, with music from all of Pink Floyd, including David Gilmour, Rick Wright and Nick Mason. A lot of the musical ideas just came up just sort of jamming away in these rehearsal rooms. Obviously, the lyrics Roger brought in, because he had things to say, and it was the first time that he wrote all the lyrics. So Roger was our sort of pushing, driving force. I listened to it again recently, and it uh, always amazes me uh, that, I that I got away with it, really, because it's so sort of lower sixth, uh, you know... Um, Breathe, breathe in the air, don't be afraid to care. In fact, I think within the context of the music and within the context of the piece as a whole, people are prepared to uh, accept that simple exhortation, to be prepared to stand your ground and attempt to live your life in an authentic way. basically and I love that's my favourite uh, 
that's my inspiration. And the interesting thing about this song is that we're talking about the jazz. There's a certain chord, which is... That is totally down to a chord I had heard on, actually, Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue, which is... Um, chord I just loved and when we're doing breathe we got to G I got to G and how do you get to E again well again normally you go but um, I remember this chord and I remember working it out at home listening to the record and I just thought brilliant at double tracking vocals I mean you could do it with machines but there's a, but there's a difference Look around Choose your own ground and There's also a harmony part long you live high you fly that's, that's it on its own Smiles you'll give and tears you'll cry And all you touch and all you see after Breathe, we had a thing called the Travel Section, as it started out, but soon changed in the studio. Here's Roger Walters. When you're working in a band and you're performing something, it willy-nilly, it, it develops and, and changes. pre-bootlegging days this course was a far more effective and better way of doing things because you went into the studio rehearsed up we'd been playing it live that way for quite some time as a sort of guitar jam sort of piece I think we were none of us that happy with it as a, as a piece. And when we also had this synthesizer. The synth A, which had a little built in keyboard and it had a sequence. It was the first sequencer, I think. I just plugged this up and started playing one sequence on it. And uh, Roger immediately pricked up his ears and thought, that sounded good. And came out and we started mucking with it together. And then um, he put in a new sequence of notes and it all developed out of that. A series of notes played in slowly. Triggering a noise generator and oscillators and then just speed it up, you know. There you've got it, basically. And that, of course, immediately sounded much more exciting and new than what we were currently doing. Maybe the first band to really go out and try to sort of make music of the future. We were doing a lot of things with tape loops and, and curious sounds and sound effects. And there wasn't sampling in 1972 when they put that album together, but that's basically what they were doing. They were, they were, in a sense, they were giving you a preview of the sound pictures of the future. 
So this is the main synthesizer. It has the hi-hat element built in, and then we treat it with filters and with other oscillators to give it that sort of vibrato noise. And we bring in this guitar, which is a backwards guitar with echo and stuff on it, and it's being played with a mic stand leg, just sliding up. And that wizard left and right across the stereo. Then there's these synthesizers. Synthies, which are creating sort of futuristic vehicle noises, which you take the pitch down a little bit and pan it at the same time. That creates an artificial Doppler sound. Looks like ambulances whizzing past you. Bring in some footsteps and some heartbeats for extra tension. As you see, there's an awful lot going on in this track. This section in particular, the, the, the travel section, the uh, on the run section, um, I think was pretty complicated. A, a lot of a lot of hands on on deck. You're listening to a rock show special celebrating 50 years of Pink Floyd's classic Dark Side of the Moon. And one important person in the making of the album was engineer Alan Parsons. I was commissioned to um, record some uh, clocks for a sound effects record for um, the very early days of Quadraphonic. And when we were doing time he suggested we might like to have these clocks. My memory of it is just this room full of tapes rolling around because it, it was, without any sort of com computer help, everything had to be done manually. Getting all the clocks to chime at the, at the right time, and that was a, a process of uh, just finding a particular moment on the multi-track tape where all the chiming would happen and then back-timing the, uh, the quarter-inch originals which contained the, each of the clocks. And then the, the very critical thing of tapes starting at a specific moment, which is all done with hand signs and stopwatches. Processed. And um, we actually put this effect called a frequency translator on them, which made them sound like this. There's the solo.
usually mostly the first take that's the best one and you find yourself repeating yourself thereafter. Seventies was the era of the guitar, and um, he had that that uh, sort of very bluesy sound. But then also he had that other sound, that sort of spacey, very crystalline, almost ethereal quality. then that year that uh, life was already happening I think it's because my mother was so obsessed with education and the idea that childhood and adolescence and well everything was about preparing for a life that was going to start later Um, and I suddenly realised that life wasn't going to start later that it had you know it starts at dot and it happens all the time and then at any point you can grasp the reins and start guiding your own destiny and that was a big revelation to me I mean it came as quite a shock lines I think on Dark Side of the Moon is is Roger's line about hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way which is the sort of line you could imagine, I don't know, Evelyn War or Somerset Maugham or someone writing as an observation on on the English character and I think that that character does permeate the whole record and indeed the, the, the whole of Pink Floyd's career. feelings about things very uh, simply and I think that um, musically I think that the music is to some extent driven by that emotional commitment Talking of emotional, one of the most emotive pieces on the album is called The Great Gig in the Sky 
written by Richard Wright, and with a vocal composition, but no lyrics, by Claire Torrey. The band basically wanted another four or five minutes of music, and we thought it could be an instrumental. I think I just, as I always have done, as I sat at the piano and, and I... Those first two chords came. Us and them and the great gig in the sky, you know, are fabulous chord sequences and uh, really, truly wonderful pieces of music. Amazing. That was fantastic. But that was done while we were mixing. We knew what we wanted, not exactly musically, but we knew that we wanted someone to just improvise over this piece. So we directed her. We said, well, think about death, think about horror, think whatever, and just go and sing. And my memory is that she went out in the studio and did it very, very quickly, and then came back in and said, I'm really sorry about this, very embarrassed, and we in fact were sitting in the studio saying, this is wonderful. And of course it's absolutely brilliant. Both both Rick's um, piano and organ work, and Claire's singing is just incredibly moving. This, I remember we increased the echo slowly.
The album was originally released in a gatefold LP sleeve designed by Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell of Hypnosis. It featured a photograph of a glass prism dispersing light into colour. The light has six colours, missing out indigo from the normal spectrum of light. The gatefold sleeve also had a visual representation of the heartbeat sound used throughout the album, continuing the spectrum of light across the gatefold cover. It was a memorable sleeve. Here's Richard Wright. It is probably the most recognisable album cover of all time. Something that you can sit and look at for a long time without getting fed up with it. The prism is the is the logo that absolutely defines the record. Dark Side of the Moon prism design comes from three basic ingredients, one of which is the light show that the band put on, so I was trying to represent that. Also, one of the themes of the lyrics, which was, I think, about ambition and greed. And thirdly, it was an answer to Rick Wright, who said that he wanted something simple and bold and dramatic. The presentation, as we call it, of the design to the band was a fairly brief affair. He just brought in three or four ideas. I do remember instantly seeing the pyramids. They came in and they looked around and uh, they went, hmm, 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 that one. Everyone immediately went, terrific, great, let's do that. As epitomised by their ability to choose it so quickly and so easily, I just think it's somehow very fitting. I mean, it's hard to imagine it without it, isn't it, really? We are celebrating 50 years of one of the best-selling albums ever, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, and it's time to bring you Side 2, and Pink Floyd's biggest hit to date, and one of their most famous songs called Money. The story in, in America had been a sort of disaster that really we hadn't sold records and like all good artists, the first thing you do is blame the record company. But in this particular case, I think we might get a few more people to agree that they hadn't performed properly. And so there was, uh, they brought in a man called Basker Menon who was absolutely terrific and he decided that he was going to make this work and he was going to make uh, the American company uh, sell this record and he did they always say you know you need a hit single and we had a sort of hit single with money sort of twang to it all. Listening to the original demo, it's not like that at all. It's all very kind of prissy and very English. The one thing about money that I think 
people forget is that it's got the weirdest, it's one of the biggest hits with the weirdest time signature. Very unusual, seven, seven, eight time. Um, good riff. single because it's about the very thing that it became. It's about success. Something certainly did the trick and it moved us up into Super League, I suppose you might say, um, which brought with it some great joy, some pride and some problems. Of course it changed our life. Um, we were now a big rock and roll band playing in stadiums. You don't know what you're in it for anymore. You know, you were in it to achieve massive success and get rich and famous and all those other things that go along with it. And uh, when they're all suddenly done, you're going, hmm, well, why? What next? It's not to say we didn't do some good work, but the good work that we did was actually all about a lot of the negative aspects of what went on after we'd achieved um, the goal. I mean, that obviously informed what what turned out to be the next album quite deeply. Wish you were here. 
because we weren't most of us most of the time another of richard wright's rest in peace great legacy of dark side of the moon was the brilliant us and them here's david gilmore amazing to me now that, um, that we had that piece of music in 1969 when we recorded um, the music as a brisky point and throughout um, I guess Atom Heart Mother Obscured by Clouds album the metal album we didn't dig it out and use it such a lovely piece of music just sitting in the studio and uh, I was sitting at the piano and I happened to have this violent sequence up and I was watching it and probably because I was feeling a bit tired or whatever, I just did, started this, the chord sequence. At the time, I think everyone thought this is really good. When we thought we'd really got something brilliant for his movie, um, Antonioni would say... It's beautiful, but it's too sad, you know. It makes me think of church. It was obviously waiting to be reborn in this album. The lyrics are so direct and linear. Those fundamental issues of whether or not the human race is capable of being humane... What's good about the writing of the song, from my point of view, is the is the uh, the leaving of the gaps for the repeat echo. Us. And them. It's kind of strange hearing it without the without the echo, isn't it? <laughs> with instrumentalists over the years working with people having very very often as, as a producer in my capacity for producing records having to say to people no leave a hole you know no just play for half a bar and then leave a bar and a half free you know empty and that's kind of what that song is you know that's the way it works similar voices. Both their voices are a big factor in Dark Side of the Moon, the way they the way they blend. Haven't you heard? It's a battle of words. That's Dave and Rick together. And then Rick does another part below that, which you can hear now. And then the girls are also joining in.
So, like, if you give them a quick sh- short, sharp shock, they don't do it again. Dig it? I mean, he got off light because I could have given him a thrashing. I only hit him once. It's only a difference of right and wrong, isn't it? I mean, good manners don't cost nothing, do they? Hey. It seemed to me really important. I can't, I've no idea why it did to, to have um, voices on this thing. So the only thing that was clever about it at all was how to do it. So not not to have an interview. Devised probably in the canteen and um, done later that evening. So I wrote out a bunch of cards and with um, questions on them. I think what the voices did on the record very well was they, they actually brought out the dark side. They were, in a way, the dark side of the record. First of all, we used a number of people who were in the studio with us, so we used three or four of our road crew. I'm not frightened of dying at all. Because when you got to go, you got to go. The Irish doorman here, Jerry. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You've got to go sometime. Wings were recording in here at the same time, so we actually used Paul and Linda, Henry McCulloch. I don't know I was really drunk at the time. It's the people who are not used to being interviewed who come up with the stuff. I think they started off with, what's your favourite colour, you know, and on your favourite food, and, when, and none of which was just to get people there. And then they went into, when was the last time you were violent? This was the good bit. Was, when was the last time you were violent? And then you'd, take, you'd answer it and then take the next card, and the next card said, were you in the right? Yeah. <laughs> I was in the right. Yes, absolutely in the right. I certainly was in the right. Yeah, I was definitely in the right. That geezer was cruising for a bruising. And uh, this remarkable roadie called Roger the Hat... If I participate in this forever, I hope I, I'm going to get my gold disc at the end of it. Imagine that. Oh. They were trying to track him down to do the cards, and by the time they got hold of him, somebody the, the cards had gone missing. I don't know where they'd gone. So uh, Roger Waters actually ended up doing it. He actually did do that one as an interview. Right. So, do you ever think <laughs> you're going mad, Roger? Um... I once reached a stage in my life where I was completely convinced that I'd gone over the brink, or well, that's what I cared to call it. It was obviously a bit to do with Sid, and I think it's about defending the notion of being different.
question that's facing us all is whether or not we're capable of dealing with the whole question of us and them. There's no question in my mind that, that Dark Side of the Moon was one of the most important artistic statements of the last 50 years probably. It's touched very many people all over the world in ways that could not simply be put down to the fact that, oh, they're nice tunes, and oh, I like that bit at the end. I mean, it, this was a complete experience. It was, a, it was actually a really grim time, and he wrote a very grim record, but did it with music that was extremely uplifting, compelling and bewitching. I think it was a very, very happy and creative and enjoyable time when we made this album. It was probably the most focused moment in our career in terms of all of us working together as a band. I'd love to have been a person who could sit back with his headphones on to listen to that the whole way through for the first time. I mean, I never had that experience. <laughs> but uh, it would have been nice. The thing that's often missed is the fact that basically people are responding to it on an emotional level. And that's what makes great records. It's driven by emotion. There's nothing plastic about it. You know, there's, there's nothing contrived about it. And, and I think that's what has given it its, or maybe one of the things that's given it its longevity. our special documentary the 50th anniversary of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon we're going to be playing the album in full in the final hour of this week's rock show